Welcome, welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast presented to you from the Western Cape Pot Bunker located here in the heart of Cape Town, South Africa. This pod is presented to provide a platform and a voice for built environment professionals and interest groups who are working towards transforming the places and spaces here in South Africa. It is dedicated to those individuals and community groups that are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. So today we're going to take a look at the Corridors of Freedom initiative that was an ambition and a spatial planning drive in Johannesburg towards the 2010 uh, period. Uh, we're going to speak to Yondela Selmela, who was uh, one of the um, leading architects, if you like, of the, the, the Corridors of Freedom. And we're going to look at the perspectives of what, what worked and the challenges that she faced. I've known Yondela for, for many, many years, probably two decades or more, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, she has really got one of the most impressive CVs you can come across. She's worked for the CSIR up in Pretoria. She's worked for the public investment company, the PIC, uh, in, in the property world. She has been the executive director and worked within the city of Johannesburg for almost a decade. And in more recent times, um, after stint in the private sector, she has uh, taken up a very uh, interesting position in the World Bank based out of uh, Paris in France. And she'll talk a bit about that during the course of the podcast, about her hopes and uh, ambitions in that space and some of the challenges that she's going to be facing. So yeah, Yondela is a, is a, a truly inspirational a professional and leader uh, f- coming from South Africa. She um, really it was excellent to be able to spend some time listening to her thoughts. And I hope you're going to enjoy some of her insights into the work that were, was associated with those corridors of freedom. First up, I'm just going to read from the brochure that was developed in support of the corridors of freedom. This extract is taken from the brochure that outlined the ambition and the extent uh, the medium and the long-term ambition of, the, of the, the Corridors initiative. For too long, our city continues to be shaped by our apartheid past. It is still divided by rich and poor areas, white and black areas, townships and suburbs. Black people in the main continue to live far from their workplaces and have to travel for distances to reach places of work, school, education, leisure and so on. We are restitching our city to create a different vision for our residents where we can link jobs to people and people to jobs. We will be embarking on transit-orientated development. Because the developments are along transportation corridors, the provision of transport like Ria Via will enable fast, safe and affordable mobility along the corridors. Thus we have dubbed these corridors Corridors of Freedom giving our residents increased freedom of movement as well as economic freedom, liberating them from the apartheid spatial legacy characterized by informal settlements, poor schooling and limited recreational spaces. The new city skyline will consist of high-rise residential developments growing around the transit nodes, gradually decreasing in height and density as it moves further away from the core. Social infrastructure, schools, clinics, police stations and government offices will be strategically located to support the growing population. The corridors they were looking at in the medium term 
which at that stage was around the 2010 through to 2016 period, was Soweto to the CBD along Perth uh, and Empire roads, the CBD uh, of Joburg to Alexandra, Alexandra to Santon, and then a series of Pungdiskulum uh, uh, nodal developments in and around Turfentine, the mining belt uh, in the longer term, um, and then really starting to look towards 2040, linking Santon with Randburg and ultimately through to Deepslut and linking Alexandra uh, with Ivory Park to the north near Midrand. I remember it very well the day that the Corridors of Freedom uh, brochure hit my desk and being uh, incredibly excited and also somewhat confused. We'd been working on the corridors uh, initiatives and as a strategy for quite some time, but this was the first time we were really getting a sense that the uh, the politicians and the marketing side of the, the thinking was coming together. And it really gave us a sense that the gears had changed, that the pace and the drive for change was really, really starting to uh, materialize. The podcast is really looking at uh, the work and some of the approaches that were taken in the Corridors of Freedom initiative. You've heard the introduction there of what it was trying to uh, address in terms of form and function and some of the ideas of mixing the social and the physical aspects of development in a far more integrated way and with the idea of the transit orientated development being a massive uh, push within that space using the public transportation that was being developed by the city to really drive the, the, the spatial outcomes that were desired. Let's hear from Yondela. Welcome to Yondela Silamela. We're talking to her on the Talking Transformation podcast. Uh, she's waking up in uh, Paris this morning. And uh, Yondela, welcome to Talking Transformation. Many thanks for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much, Pete. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. That's an absolute privilege to have you on. And um, as we as we talked in, in the week, really what I wanted to chat to you today was about the time that you were with the city of Johannesburg and your work there in your sort of executive director capacity. Uh, during the time that you worked on the Corridors of Freedom, which I think many of us would argue is one of the most ambitious corridor-based spatial transformation projects. Um, can you maybe give us a bit of insight into the background about how they came into being and what was the intention of them from the inception of the of the Corridors of Freedom? Sure. So I think the, the first thing to realize is that the, the kind of underbuild of the Corridors of Freedom wasn't something that started in the five years that I was at the city. Uh -huh. that the city had in fact been working on corridor development as a policy approach for for a while and what happened with the corridors of freedom i think it was a confluence of maybe three things one was a technical idea that had found maturity in the system the second one was a political support and then the third was a little bit of money so financial resources mm. to do some really interesting things so i think it was a combination of those three things that came together at just the right time. And of course, really very clever branding and the name was catchy. Yeah. And, yep. and that's what gave impetus to what, what is in fact a planning, a planning approach that, that had been uh, with, the, with, the, with the city of Joburg for quite some time. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting you touched on some of those points because my take, um, having worked on some of those corridor strategies uh, in Johannesburg for a number of years, mm. was that the initiative took on a new, almost lease of life once those politicians took ownership of the existing opportunity and that sort of almost shrewd marketing, the, the whole concept of corridors of freedom as a major branding exercise. And that to me was where the, 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 the acceleration in the idea and the support and that political impetus really kicked in and uh, took it to a different level. Yeah. So I think that the, the two things, and, and you write about the political impetus, but for me what, what also matters is it was, a, it was a technical solution or technical approach that had been refined over time. So there was in-depth understanding of, of the, the, the technical approach and how it works and what works and what doesn't mm. work. Because you can, you can have the right political support, but if the technical solution isn't there. so And this, the thing about local government is, and planning in particular, it's that combination of ideology, which usually resides in the political space, and the technical um, know-how, which usually resides with, with officials. So when those two things meet at just the right point, magic happens. Absolutely. And maybe a third part that we'll talk about just now is the whole question of when you bring the public into that space. So if you've got the political, the technical, how does the public input and support or, or not start to impact on the uh, impact on the on the effectiveness? I mean, one of the things that uh, I mean, if we look at land use intensification, mixing up land uses, densifying spaces, it's often a challenge. And I mean, how much did this whole question of the concept of nimbyism or not in my backyard uh, impact on some of those aspirations? I'm thinking now particularly along the sort of Joburg CBD through to Alex along the Louis Porter corridor. Um, mm-hmm. How much of that sort of NIMBY can be addressed via the political space and how much via solid technical evidence? <laughs> I'm sort of really getting to how do you do it? Do you do it through sure. an iron fist or via hearts and minds? Um, what is the what is your sort of reflection on that? Yeah, so I I grew up a long time ago and I learned to drive when when manual cars were still the way to go and clutch balancing was <laughs> clutch balancing was the thing, right? Um, and I think it it requires a, a combination of both iron fist and um, and a, a soft touch, right? So mm-hmm. and you can start from the from the kind of light light handed awareness and and conversation because maybe sometimes people just don't know any better, right? Sure. And in some instances, there are particular interests that are being protected. And other than protecting those narrow interests, there's no other consideration. In which mm. case, then maybe or if you think of it as a spectrum from build awareness right through to be directive and enforce it, you will need to apply a whole range of approaches along that spectrum. Um, so, so for me, the first thing is once we call it nimbism, we also take a particular posture. And when I say we, I mean uh, public officials, both elected Understood. and appointed. And perhaps it's easier to, for me, what what makes it easy is to think of it as a city that's in transition. And you need to manage the transition because once you think nimby, you think they're being narrow. They're just there. and maybe it isn't, right? Maybe there mm. are certain things that you need to hear. So, so. Perhaps remove the label and understand it as a transition, and that you're you're literally a midwife that's birthing this new city. <laughs> and, and, and after birthing comes parenting, not so. And I mean, I think one of the things where we totally the whole question of urban management and how you manage that space that you're creating is is becoming increasingly one of the issues that we've been uh, challenged on because because often we don't get it right, not so. 
totally and and that's one of the major comments that we heard in the public um in the public engagements because a big part of um, intensification densification is that you reduce the amount of space that an individual occupies and is responsible for and a significant proportion of space becomes public i mean if you think of the major cities of the world people don't have private gardens ordinarily sure. they go to public parks now if you do that in an in an environment where the public doesn't doesn't have a reputation of well managed public spaces of course there's going to be resistance and that's not nimbism that's that's a real issue right absolutely and i think that's where the, these things need to be defined very clearly and yeah i think so, you're making a very valid point there yeah i mean the, there was an interesting uh, public meeting that we we had and one of the comments that was put forward was but there aren't even schools to cater for these people yeah. that you're going to bring in common and issue as, yeah and as you know education is not a local government competence so it it really brought in an interesting challenge so how do we carve out space for schools that we don't we, we're not responsible for that we are not going to build in areas that are perhaps not even priority for the provincial department of education and those are real issues for for cities and city planners to think about managing this transition with um, across spheres on functions that we have no jurisdiction over uh, absolutely couldn't agree with you more there I mean, one of the things I thought Josie went a long way down the line was around the consideration of using a tax increment financing or TIF as a tool to implement some of the uh, the, the aspirations of the Corridors of Freedom. Um, mm -hmm. you, maybe you just want to reflect on the, the, the TIF as a tool that you guys had considered. I'm thinking of it because we often so often talk about this idea of incentives or land value capture. You know, we never sure. seem to be able to move on from the theory and the case studies of Kritiba or, you know, these things. So, yeah, your thoughts on TIF and the, the aspects of land value capture and incentives more broadly, perhaps. So maybe we separate land value capture and incentives because I think they're slightly different. Mm, right? mm. So in the first instance, if you, if you think about it, and technically speaking, the city in, in South African cities already do capture a great deal of value from bulk contributions, um, because that is a value capture mechanism, right through in particular to how our municipal uh, property tax regime works. Mm -hmm. So before the MPRA, the Municipal Property Rate Act, the municip municipality only taxed on the undeveloped value of land post MPRA it's the it's the developed value of land. So the city the does extract exactly. So it does extract some of that value. So there are already quite a few land value capture mechanisms that are in the system. The idea behind the TIF wasn't so much to introduce a, um, an additional tax, but rather to sell that future tax revenue and get Understood. the funding upfront so that you can invest in, in whatever is required to enable that area. So for for the end user, there would be no difference, the end user being the property owner, there would be no difference in what they pay. The the difference is in the back office or so within the city, that additional tax revenue is ring-fenced and it's used to service whatever debt um, uh, you acquired to get the infrastructure to finance and open up that to that particular area. So that's 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 a fundamental difference. And then the discussion about incentives is is a completely different one because perhaps sure. what you could do with the TIF as an incentive is if you say to a, a two or three developers in a particular area, as and it's a non-financial incentive, but I will focus on this area and I will develop this instrument and spend the money 
in this area in time with how the develop your, your guys' development uh, timeline. So that's that's how I think it would work as an incentive TIF in particular. So almost providing those basic sort of. Uh necessities in the development world of certainty and a coherence around the investment strategy, not so? Totally. So you don't you don't have to go to, in the Jobek instance and wait for when GRA is going to do the roads and city power and that timing may not be in sync with your development program. We can consolidate the city's investment and we can agree with you on timing because we need to deploy the resources for the bulk infrastructure or the initial infrastructure but we also need certainty of when you will do the developments so that we can generate the additional tax revenue that we use to finance the debt we incurred for the initial investment. And in the meantime, making sure that, for example, an Alex, uh, a Soweto, a Deep Slut, uh, it does not miss out because in the meantime, you've got commitments there in terms of other investment programs and other uh, commitments and so forth. So that, that is a major um, critique of TIFs is that they do, in fact, lock in that revenue, that additional uh, property tax revenue in that area. So your ability to redistribute, but specifically it's the additional revenue. Your ability to redistribute is limited until mm. such time as that, debt, as that debt has been as, as retired, in which case then the tax increment is no longer ring fence and it goes to the fiscus, to the municipal fiscus more broadly. So, so the municipality does need to take into account what um, what shift it does. The the the, the thing that that counters that argument is, had had the municipality not invested the money, that additional revenue would not have come anyway. So you're not redirecting existing sure. revenue; you're redirecting future revenue. How far down the line, Yondela, did Joba go in 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 in? actually executing the TIF. Did, am, I, am I correct in re- recalling that you got only so far and then realized that actually it wasn't the most appropriate vehicle and took a different approach? I'm trying to remember uh, back to how far you got uh, with the execution of the TIF. So we, we, we um, looked at a particular area in, in Rosebank and we were in, in, in discussions with the developers. Where, where we hit a stumbling block was the accounting treatment of the instrument. So we were trying to okay. find an, a mechanism that allows the city to borrow without impacting the city's balance sheet. Right. So we were looking for an off-balance sheet instrument. And I mean, it, we, we've now determined, uh, and, and this is work that's now actually being done by the DBSA, with the assistance of Treasury in the City Support Program, that it's not possible for it to be a totally off-balance sheet instrument. Mm. Um, and that cities can can use the instrument with some kind of uh, limited recourse or limited liability being taken on by the city. So the city still needs to reflect that uh, liability on its, on its balance sheet because it's the basis on which it explains the ring fencing of the additional increment and the paying of that money out. So as as a as a financing instrument the numbers worked so the market assessment in Rosebank when we did the work the numbers worked you could raise a, a significant amount of money on the basis of future revenue certainly enough um to put in the bulk infrastructure that was required and um if i recall correctly the repayment period was something like 7 years on the case that okay. we did so it it certainly does work on the property economic on the property economics 
it works on the financial considerations. The issue was the accounting treatment. And that's the one sticking point that still needs to be resolved. And not just for Joburg, but I think for other South African cities that would be interested in this. Fascinating. I mean, isn't it interesting that here we are talking about trying to restructure cities using technical approaches supported by politics, and it comes back to the money. It comes back to the financial part. You know, and I think that's been one of our challenges. I mean, you know, when when you and I started off in in, in planning, what twenty or more years ago, you know, we typically was more in the a policy and strategy field, and increasingly Mm -hmm. we seem to be treading on other professional uh, remits, such as the whole question of finance, the whole question of infrastructure. Uh, So you're entering a bean counting world and you're entering an engineering engineering world. And I think that's one of the challenges for us in the future. But, um, yeah, fascinating to hear your your, your recollection of the TIF. And um, it'll be interesting to see how far those conversations are continuing with the likes of um, the National Department of Treasury uh, City Support Program, who you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so, so I, I, you, you, you're totally correct. It's not possible in this joined-up world that we live in now to take a singular view on any single matter, and, and cities more so. There is so much connectedness. And certainly within the planning profession, when, when I was taught planning, I was told that it's the, it's the discipline that sits in the middle and has to coordinate with engineering, environment, economics. So, so it is inbuilt in the in the discipline of planning it training hasn't always been it, it hasn't always been practiced though and less so in relation to municipal finance and that's why land value capture is interesting um i think you were there pete when we had the session with uh dr Kloss, and he made the point that every time a town planner changes the color on a map he's literally he or she is literally signing a blank check I mean, I mean, that's a powerful, powerful statement, right? Right. And unless we understand that, unless as planners we understand the, the effect of our work on real estate economics and in turn on municipal finance, then we, you, we're losing a golden opportunity to do some really, really interesting things. And, and this is not to screw the developer and make money for the city um, or, or to look at land use decisions that only um, look at making a profit, a real estate investment profit, because you can actually still achieve kind of those social outcomes, allowing real, private real estate investors to still make money and to close some of those benefits back for the municipality. And then that's an interesting space to be in. And trying to deliver on some of those Bloomer principles, right? Your that whole question of spatial efficiency, justice, et cetera, et cetera. Totally. So what, really, if I hear what you're saying, we have to become best best friends with the chief financial officers around the world, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, when we worked on the tip things in Joburg, it was interesting. So we got to understand ROI. And Absolutely. the finance people got to understand that FAR is not far. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> Lame, but yeah. <laughs> not, not not bad for eight o'clock on a Saturday morning, right? <laughs> yeah. you, I mean, what it was for keeping it light. I mean, you know, you've always brought a sense of humour to what's often a very 
serious space and you know series of issues it's a serious business that we work with i mean when we talked to phil in the first podcast he was saying this is a serious serious business but you know maybe can you share a story or two that uh, still makes you smile a few months a few years on um keep it clean but you know i'd love to i'd love to to hear you you know you must have so many stories to tell and um yeah let's just try and keep it light for a few more moments Okay, I don't know if I can keep it, keep it clear. Can I start with a story that still makes me cry, though? Oh, you, you, and, you're and very welcome. We, we get to the... <laughs> it's so it's we, early Saturday. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, were, we were at a, a mayoral committee meeting and um, talking about what, what it takes to implement the Corridors of Freedom, right? Understood. And we were having a conversation about should we just try and get big developers to come in, buy up, properties along Louis Porta, for instance, demolish mm. and rebuild. Then then this idea of a compact high density city will will materialize within kind of a, a foreseeable future. And our view was cities aren't built like that. You don't get a single person to come with a bulldozer and rebuild sure. an entire corridor. That it's mm. more sustainable actually for individual property owners to incrementally um, build up. So, so not, not to the exclusion of big developers, but that's not, that's not the game. Yeah? Understood. Um, and one of the comments that was made was that we, t- we are not taking this tran- transformation seriously, that we are committed to retaining the legacy of the past. Because mm. we're not moving with speed, you know that that really. It's a, it's a common, hurt. it's a common, common criticism of the work we but do. But that that cut really, really, really deep because at the heart of what we're trying to do is in fact to change the legacy of the past and change it more fundamentally than on the surface. I mean, at the time, if you, if we were talking about how how do you start thinking differently even about backyard rentals? So it, I mean, it's one thing to talk about the corridors, but we, we're intervening in real estate economics. And this real estate economics happens not just in the suburban Johannesburg, but in the formal way. In, in, yeah, it happens informally. So how do we Absolutely. enable property owners to create value, real estate value, so that the the kind of understanding of what it what owning property does Work. I mean, if you follow, if you go back to DeSoto and why property works, uh, or, or uh, yeah, why why this works in the in the West and nowhere else, mm. this is this is at the heart of what we're trying to do. And to get a comment that says we're still committed to the legacy of our party, that that, that really that really hurt. That deep, actually, eh? that got snot and trane right there. Mm. So yeah, and, and and then just I'm trying to think of. Uh, I, I actually genuinely cannot think of a single light moment. <laughs> I, and, and from a person who laughs literally 24 seconds, humor in the most inane things, I'm, I'm really struggling to come up with, uh, with an example. But I, I, I will say this, that um, the five years in Joburg was really, really, really amazing. The, the people that I worked with were truly exceptional. And the ability, how how passionately they viewed the work, but also how not seriously they took themselves was where the magic was. I mean, people could really laugh at themselves and, and some of the things that we went through. But I, I genuinely cannot think of a clean... Um... <laughs> no, let's leave it there then. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, Yundela, um, you've recently re relocated in the last month or so to Paris to take up a, a role with the World Bank. Uh, so congratulations uh, from all of us here on the pod. Um, can you tell us maybe what you're going to be doing and focusing on and what the challenges that you think you're going to be facing there in uh, working and being based there in Paris and the work that you're going to be expanding into? Um, sure. So um, I'm going to be part of a five, six person team. Um, based in Paris, working in um, Europe and Central Asia, in ECA region, working with uh, cities around planning, and planning predominantly, but the, the, the point we spoke about, the conference of, of planning, municipal infrastructure, and municipal finance. Um, there's a program that the bank is working with directly with municipalities, but in some instances also with the European Commission, and really kind of strengthening the planning capability in municipalities so that they're better able to direct the investment decisions that they make. So that's, that's broadly what, what the assignment entails. Um, and just in terms of challenges, my gosh. So firstly, working in, in an area that I, I, have, I don't understand. Every time they mention a city, I have to go and look on Google Maps. <laughs> Google's Google. great, eh? Hey? <laughs> <laughs> Google's amazing. Where in the world is it? It's a, it's a city in which country? And I, I have no understanding of the history of these areas and therefore what what um, anchors the planning policies, for instance. Because there's a, there's a direct relationship between the posture that's taken in planning law and history. Sure. And if you don't understand history, then it's kind of difficult to understand the, the contextual stuff. So that's the one big thing that I need to work on and understand. I mean, the history of the Balkans, for instance, um, you know, well, I mean, what, yeah. what sensitivities are there? What's the land ownership uh, history and whatever dynamics? What can one do? What can one not do? What can one say? What can one not say? Um, and then the, the language. Um, I mean, it's one thing to try and read up on the stuff, but it's not like I can pull up this pluma and read it because it's written in... <laughs> And Google Translate is really, really great, but sometimes the translations are really fast. There's a limit, not so. <laughs> there, is, there, is totally, there, is totally a, there is totally a limit. Um, so that's, the, yeah, so those are probably the two biggest issues. But in, I mean, having read through some of the work that's been done, the challenges are also interesting. So, I mean, we struggle with cities that are growing. They're struggling with shrinking cities that are depopulated. Um, so we, we have a shortage of housing stocks. So they have excess housing stock and they're trying to figure out what to do with this housing stock in cities that have less people than they did when they were planning for them or when they were building them. So in some instances, it's, it's, the challenges are completely different. I've never worked in an environment that has real seismic risk um, considerations. And this is a big issue in, in a lot of the cities that I'm going to be working in. So suddenly having to understand um, from a disaster, disaster risk management perspective what, what implications that has for planning and what can we do. And, and these are um, cities with amazing architectural heritage. So how do you protect um, heritage, uh, heritage buildings from seismic risk without interfering with the, with the heritage status? Have you had a chance to check out uh, Paris? I mean, if you if you look at the the history that's there, the density, all these things that we talk about in that mm -hmm. uh, sort of context, it's, it's there in your backyard now. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also got, um, take a look at the history and the architecture. It's also got some real 
issues that we we have faced faced with here in South Africa. I'm thinking of the immigration issues, high density uh, living, yeah. which has got a lot of related crime and so forth. So yeah, I'd be interested to hear what's your initial take on um, on, on on Paris and uh, what do you think you're going to find there uh, over and beyond just the, the the beautiful history in Notre Dame and so forth. Yeah. I mean, so I, I haven't um, I haven't explored the interesting nooks and crannies of the city, but I will tell you this: I I live um, 15 minute walk from the office, um, and I mean in in a in a good part of town. But there is a homeless guy who's sleeping literally outside my my window. Sure. So when I look out, I see a homeless guy. So the city is not immune to the issues of um, homelessness and poverty mm. and all of that. I think the scale may be completely different, though. Mm. Um, and and that's that's often the thing that that we we struggle to wrap our brains around when we when we look at our, at our peers. It's just the scale of things. Sure. Um, yeah. So so check with me in two months time when I've had we'll an opportunity that. to go beyond <laughs> where, where I buy the croissant and the coffee and the, <laughs> <laughs> the fantastic cheese and ham sandwiches. I remember. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and need to be careful, but, but, uh, but you know, two, two big things that have struck me so far. So that, of course there is petty crime, sure. but being able to walk makes a huge difference. So besides the, the kind of generous sidewalks, the the freedom to walk. Yesterday, I I walked back from the office around midnight. I did not even feel I didn't feel unsafe at all. Never mind actually unsafe, but there was no perception of unsafety, and that's a huge huge deal. And that's that's the one thing we need to get right with South African cities. Absolutely. I mean, that's what a pleasure um, to be able to do that. Yeah, no, totally. Yondela, you know, um, my final uh, parting shot to you, you know, you've inspired many of us. Uh, I'd argue that you are one of the most successful and pioneering female African planners in the country. Um, what have been some of the challenges you've had to overcome? And do you have a message for your fellow professionals, the advocacy groups who are trying to work towards those things of, of spatial transformation, of making a difference. It's quite challenging right now, given what's going down in the country, and maybe just a parting shot from your side and a message to them to keep, to keep, to keep going, you know? So I was okay with your um, – by the way, thank you for those kind words. I was okay with them until you narrowed it down to female African, you know, because then that limits the – you know, I, I'd like to think – okay, never mind – um, back to, um, I mean, I, I think that we, we need to feel a little bit more. We need to see the injustice and the difficulties a little mm. bit more. I mean, it's one thing to look at the stats. It's quite another to experiences, to experience it when you're walking, driving in, in the city that you are. And if mm. that gets to you, to the core of who you are, then even your quest for solutions go beyond textbook solutions. I, I, and I think the challenges that we have to deal with currently were not anticipated when textbooks were written. We do need to rethink our search for solutions, and it's often the unconventional solutions that um, that work. Um, and the, the second big thing for me is, which was a big, big lesson for me, is often we talk about political interference. And the reality is that if you work in government, it's not political interference. Government is a political institution. And we need to refine our ability to engage with politics without getting into party political issues, mm. but our ability to engage with politicians and to provide appropriate solutions 
technically sound solutions and even head on conversations about what works, what doesn't work is, is where the magic happens. But we, we can't keep talking about, because I, I, again, I cannot see this notion of political interference when you are rooted in what is essentially a political institution. I think it's a it's a it's a powerful message and it's a it's a timely reminder, um, given the politics of the day and so forth. That absolutely we have to try and meet uh, the politicians at their point of need. Not so. Totally. So and 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 also engage with them in a manner that potentially gets them to challenge their their ideological positions, because if you can present evidence of where certain things have not worked, so. We're trying to stop migration. It doesn't work. But you mm. can't say you can't say that's political interference and take take that on because you are in a political in, in environment and you're best placed actually to to change political views that you think are not advancing um, the country. Yondele, many thanks. There you have it from one of one of the most successful <laughs> and pioneering planners in the country. <laughs> No, no gender, no race. Just, just telling you the way oh, it is. There, there we go. Leave is one of the most inspiring people I've ever had the privilege privilege of working with. Ah, many thanks for for taking the, your time out on a Saturday morning to come and chat with us and reflect on some of your time uh, in the work that you've done and the work that you're going to be doing. From our side, we really want to wish you the very best. Um, please stay in contact, keep well, and have a lovely weekend uh, coming up. Thank you so much, Peter, and, and all the best to you and the, and the pod. I mean, I think it's really, really amazing finding also wild and wonderful ways to keep the conversation going and hopefully um, keep the flame alight, eh? Well, we'll, try, we'll certainly try and do that. Many thanks, Yondela. Enjoy the rest of your day. Get involved, get informed, most importantly, get subscribed. You can find us on our Twitter feed at TalkingTransfo.com the number one at Talking Transfer One. Talking Transformations music kindly supplied by Tribal Need. Find them at tribalneed.com.